in this episode of Boss Files. The man behind the beer. Sam Adams beer, that is. Jim Cook. He's the founder of the American brewing legend, who left his fancy consulting job to take a shot at brewing up his family recipe. It is a deeply personal mission, one his father underestimated him on at first, but today he is finishing his father's own dream. I got to do something that my dad told me not to do because he didn't think I could make it. But then I pulled it off and he got to be part of it. Plus, why he says he's a terrible CEO and tells his employees to live by the F.U. rule. Seriously, here's our interview, over a beer of course, with Jim Cook. I have to warn you that I'm boring when I'm sober, so Poppy, is it okay if I have a beer? Go ahead and get drunk. That'll make the interview more exciting. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) Uh, For the record, he's the one drinking, not me. Jim Cook, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure having a beer with you. It is a pleasure having a beer with you, my friend. So, uh, to be clear for our listeners, making beer, not exactly your plan on how to make a living, right? This was not the plan. No, because I grew up as the son of a brewmaster. In fact, I'm the sixth oldest son in a row to be a brewer. But when my dad was a brewmaster, the beer industry in the United States was consolidating and breweries were closing. I think he told me when he got out of brewmaster school in 1948, there were almost a thousand breweries Mm. in the U.S. And when I started Sam Adams 36 years later, that thousand breweries had collapsed down to 50. Mm. So 95% of the breweries in the United States were driven out of business. And when I told my dad that I was going to leave the good job that I had. Right, uh, you, were, you were flying first class. You were a consultant for Boston Consulting Group making good money. Yeah, and nice office overlooking Boston Harbor. And Ooh. I told him I was going to leave all that behind and I was going to make beer. And <laughs> what he did said, say? <laughs> told me two things. He said, you know, Jim, you've done some dumb things in your life. This is just about the dumbest. (laughs) It's taken us 150 years to get the smell of a brewery out of our clothes. You got all this education. Don't tell me you're going to throw it all away just to make beer. This is 1984. Yeah, it was actually 1983 when I told him this. All right, so clearly you did not heed the advice of your father. I'm sure that he later appreciated that you did not. But what did you say back to him? Well, I explained to him, you know, Dad, I understand why you feel that way. Because when you were in the beer business, you know, all the little guys were driven out of business. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, now it's only these huge brewers that are mass marketing and mass producing enormous quantities of beer. I'm going to do something different. And I'm actually not going to compete with them. Those guys are like, you know, McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell. And... I'm not competing with them. I'm going to make something radically different and better. Mm. I am going to make rich, flavorful beer in very small batches. And my plan is to only get to about a million dollars a year in sales. That'll be 5,000 barrels, eight employees, Mm -hmm. and I can make a decent living. I'm not going to make the money I'm making now, but I can support my family, and I'll be doing something that I really 
want to do. So that was the plan about a million dollars, grow the company to a million bucks, 5,000 barrels in five years. Clearly, you did a lot better than that, a lot faster. But before we get there, let's just talk about the recipe. I mean, this was at a time when a lot of folks didn't even think American beer could be any good. And so you turned your great-grandfather's lager great, recipe? Great-great-grandfather's recipe. From the time, you know, in the second half of the 1800s, when American beer was actually very good and was winning awards mm. all over the world. And it really wasn't until the 20th century that American beer became lighter and lighter and lighter and less and less flavorful and more and more bland to kind of appeal to this big mass market. Mm. And I just thought, wait a minute, there's somebody out there, there's drinkers out there that want something better. Maybe there's not a lot of them. You know, maybe to me that 5,000 barrels was in a market that was close to 200 million mm. barrels. So I, I didn't even need one in a thousand drinkers. And I thought that one in a thousand drinker yeah. was out there. So when you started the company, you could have, you know, by your own admission, hired a bunch of MBAs, worked with really sort of highly educated folks with all the, the so-called right degrees. But you didn't do that. You chose to work with Rhonda, your secretary, and a total uh, lifesaver to you. I mean, do you think you could have had this success without her? I don't think I could have had the success. Rhonda was an amazing person, and, and it kind of all came from my dad. He said, because uh, he, after he got out of brewing, he started a business, and he gave me some good advice. He yeah. said, Jim, when you start a small business, you know, it's, it's lonely. You're going to have this roller coaster. You're going to have great days. You're going to have terrible days. And it's really nice to have somebody to share this with because it's going to be one of the great adventures yeah. of your life. And, you know, it's better if you have somebody to share it with. So I looked around Boston Consulting Group, and there were all these sort of best and the brightest sure. with these great degrees and very, very accomplished people. But I realized, hey, they're all like me. You know, they they have all the same skills, so they're not really adding anything. But wait a minute. There's this woman named Rhonda who has been my secretary, mm -hmm. and she's a really special person now. She doesn't have a college degree, so she's in some ways sort of the victim of what we have in this country. We think we're a meritocracy. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, in a lot of professions, we're not a meritocracy at all. We're a caste system. Mm based on education. Yeah. And if you don't have the, you know, the right degree, you're on the wrong side of that caste system. So Rhonda had a degree in secretarial science from a community college, but she was an incredible person and she had different skills than I had. Sure. You know, she was great with people and she knew bars. You know, I knew business, I knew beer. But Rhonda knew bars. Oh, I think you might have known a thing or two about bars. No, nah, oh, you know, I had bit. two kids. I was living in the suburbs. <laughs> All right, you know, I hear Rhonda that. had been going to bars since, I hate to say it, before she was legal. True that you guys were profitable from day one? True story? Yes, we made money the first full month. But I have to explain 
how we were able to do that. And I think it's a really important lesson mm -hmm. for you know small businesses and, and certainly startup businesses because yeah. I didn't have very much money when I started. I had $100,000 that I had saved from, uh, from Boston yeah. Consulting Group, and then I was able to raise $140,000 in small bits from drinking buddies, friends, family. Basically, my pitch was, well, we may or may not make money, but you're going to get free beer for go. life. There you and go. if we go broke, we're going to have an amazing party. <laughs> so that was kind of appealing. But we just had this little pile of money, and I was very mindful about, you know, I can't replenish that. You know, when that's gone, yeah, that's you know, gone. we're gone and we're dead. So I was very determined not to spend anything on any extras. And I thought, well, there's really two things we need to do to be successful. We need to make great beer and we need to work our butts off to sell it. So we're going to spend money on those things. So, for example, when I started, we didn't have an office. We didn't have desks. No overhead. We had zero overhead. We got our messages from an answering service that we would go to a payphone <laughs> and really? call in. Oh, I could tell you where all the payphones are oh in gosh. Boston and the warm ones for the winter sure. by neighborhood. And I, you know, have a bunch of dimes. Uh, we didn't have an accounting system or a computer or anything. I did wow. it all off of these, you know, these little pads that you'd write your invoice on. I have pink copy, yellow copy, white copy that I bought at a stationery store. So we didn't spend. Wow. We had Anything. no overhead. So six months, six not six months in, six weeks in, you guys go to this big beer festival competition, and you win best beer in America. I mean, yes. come on. What's with the luck here? <laughs> that was an amazing moment. The, this little company just started up, uh, two people, and we got picked as the best beer in America. And that did um, the obvious thing of, of gave us some credentials. But more important than that, it was uh, the beginning of changing people's mentality about beer because 30 years ago, people didn't think about quality and beer. You know, they didn't think that some beers are better than others. They were all kind of the same. They just had different advertising and different animals associated with them. <laughs> um, but quality was not a factor in people's beer decisions any more than like Coke and Pepsi. Nobody mm. said, wow, Coke uses better ingredients mm. or Pepsi is aged longer. Mm. Um, beer was that kind of beverage commodity and suddenly quality became mm. something that people realized they should be thinking about when they bought a beer. How did you convince them that they should pay more? Uh, well, that was a really hard problem because when I first started, everybody who wanted you know, quality beer thought they had to get it from an import. The reputation of American beer mm. was terrible. Um, there was this really annoying joke, and I can't even give you the punchline, because we're sort of PG, but the joke was, sort why of. was... I don't know. I don't think podcasts are regulated by any sort of... Oh, cool. Know. Well, then I can... All right. Go for so it, and we'll, this uh, we'll was check joke. with the lawyers why was Ameri Why is American beer like making love in a canoe? Okay. And the, the punchline was, because it's close to water. <laughs> and that always annoyed me. But that was the mentality, that American beer was cheap and watery and came in a can and you could crush it on your forehead. Yeah, sure. And if you wanted something better, you had to turn to an import. Right. And you were fighting that. You were saying, no, you don't. 
That's right. I had to change people's minds mm -hmm. about American beer in general. So clearly you didn't have a big marketing budget to do that. No. So how'd you do uh, it? We had, we basically had one thing, one simple thing. So all I could afford were these little paper things called table tents. Um, and then, you know, you sure. go in a bar, you the see them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're on the tables, they're on the bar, little table, you know, tent shaped thing. I couldn't even afford color printing. So I could only afford to print them in black and white. But uh, it was, in some ways, the strength of the week. And as a small business, yeah. you know, you have to think about, okay, I know I'm weak, but what strength do I have? So uh, what Rhonda and I did was we actually put them up because we cared. And we were really passionate about trying to get our message to consumers. We couldn't afford TV. We couldn't afford radio. We couldn't afford newspapers, right, any billboards, anything. But we could print these no little Twitter. table tents up. There was up. no Twitter. There was nothing like that, no podcasts. Sure. But we had these little paper table tents. And every week we would go into all of our accounts, typically when we were delivering the beer, and we would put them up. Mm. And I noticed that if... I didn't put the table tents up for a week in that account. The order the following week would be lower if it was a five case huh. account. And you're still brewing in your kitchen at this point. No, now I'm actually I'm out of the kitchen. Okay. I'm in a brewery that my dad hooked with me up with that oh, had so dad excess changed time. His mind. Oh, yeah. Well, he finally is the one that gave me the recipe. Oh, he finally right. changed his mind. And so uh, we were brewing um, in a real-world brewery with quality control and everything. There you go. And we, but we were still delivering it ourselves out of this little, first my station wagon, then a tr little tiny truck. Mm -hmm. And um, I noticed that if we didn't put the table tents up, the order the next week was less because they'd sold less. And it was roughly one table tent sold one bottle of beer. So, you know, if they gave us a typically uh, four case order and we put up 50 table tents, we would get a six case order. And if we didn't, we'd go back to four. So that's what we did. We put up hundreds of thousands of those table tents all over Boston year after year. So everybody who went into a bar in Boston, they didn't see us on the Super Bowl, but they'd sit down to order beer. And before that moment of truth, when they decide what beer to order, there was a Sam Adams table tent. And they'd never heard of Sam Adams, but it had a little story about the brewing process, the ingredients. It reminded them that America had a great brewing tradition. It talked about Sam Adams, the brewer and the right. patriot. So right there in front of them, they got the whole the Sam whole Adams story. story. So you guys now, your goal was to become a million-dollar company. The reality is you are a billion-dollar company. You have to have made missteps, failures. Was there ever a moment when you almost lost it all? Well, you know, one of the things I learned uh, is if you're going to be terribly wrong, it's a good thing to be wrong in the right direction. Okay. <laughs> so we were terribly wrong, but in the right direction. And um, to answer your question, I, to be honest, we never really had that moment. I guess until, oh gosh, 
25 years later, maybe yeah. 10 years ago, we had this, there was this one horrible moment. What happened? Well, um, we noticed that uh, our bottle supplier was giving us bottles that when you capped them, maybe one in 5,000 um, had this little piece of glass on the lip, which when you capped it, it would fall into in, the beer. Oh, no. That was my feeling, like, oh, no. And we're one of the few breweries that actually inspects bottles. It's mm. um, in front of a light box. It's a very antique kind of brewing thing called candling the bottles, so we inspect them. So we saw it, and that was like, oh, no, what do we do? I've never faced anything like that before. Recall? And so we did a recall, mm. and we... Uh, we recalled 25 million bottles of Sam Adams. And luckily, we have uh, this wonderful network of our wholesalers. Yeah. In the beer industry, as a three-tier system, you yep. have wholesalers, and they mobilized in a way that the FDA doesn't get people to mobilize. Within a week, they had almost all of those 25 million bottles out of the market on their way to be crushed and destroyed. What did it cost you? It cost us $25 million to do this. And I'll never forget, and we had a meeting with our board and with uh, where we talked about what do we do, and, and my recommendation is we have to do the right thing. Did you get pushback from your board at all? There were questions about sure. it. Thinking, but, is this worth it? Is the cost-benefit yeah, analysis worth it? Yeah, have you had it? any complaints? Has anybody gotten hurt or cut? Had you? No. No. And so the, it had been the, actually going board, on for six months. You so. fought some board members on this. No, they knew that, okay. you know, you, you do the right thing. and But there were risks. Mm -hmm. And so we announced it, and it was on, like, 200 TV stations all over the country that Sam Adams had done a recall because there was the potential of glass yeah. in the bottles. And I'll never forget, you know, after the board meeting, everyone was telephonic, everybody hung up, but my dad, because I, I knew he was still on the phone, and he was like, uh, Jim, you know, we could lose the whole company. You know that, right? And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dad, I know. You could also lose it if you don't do the right thing. And he said, don't worry. It's been a great ride. Oh. Don't worry. <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, perfect. That's the right perspective. And yeah. only, you know, your dad can give you that. Because it was like, I don't care if you fail. It's all right with me. Why is this emotional for you? It's my dad. And... I mean, it's emotional because, you know, I had this wonderful uh, experience yeah. uh, that very few people have, which is I was able to have an adult relationship with, with dad. my dad yeah. as, in, as a sort of a business partner. Yeah. And, you know, and, and even more importantly, brewing was in my family. It had yeah. gone on for, you know, 130 years when my dad got out of the beer business because he couldn't make it. And so, you, it. you know, in <laughs> some ways, there's nothing better in life than to do something that, you know, your parents think is really stupid because they don't think you can succeed, 
but they would love to have you accomplish it. I got to do something that my dad told me not to do because he didn't think I could make it. And I pulled it off and he got to be part of it. He was on my board from the day we went public. And that to him was like, oh my gosh, I get to be a director on the board of a New York Stock Exchange company? That's so cool. You, look, your dad was probably protecting you from failures that he had lived and knew and didn't want his son to live. But you, Jim, got to finish your father's dream. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So, you know, what greater blessings are there in this world? And um, Yeah, and he passed away uh, six years ago. And and I had my last Sam Adams with him about 20 minutes before he died. died. Remember what he said? He wasn't saying much at that point. He just said, Jim, let's have a beer. I told you my memories, right? My making beer with my dad. I was like 14 years old. We stunk up the entire house with hops, and that was isn't thing. that wonderful? But yeah, you created but it's one of my something most vivid memories. You created him. something magical and living. Not mm-hmm. only the beer itself, but all the memories that came out of it. Root beer for me, but yes, <laughs> indeed. So, talk about taking the company public because you took the company public. Your dad got to sit on the board. Here you are traded on the New York Stock Exchange, but unlike so many companies, you took Sam Adams Boston Beer Company public pretty quickly after you after you launched. You did it in a different way though. I mean, I I read that that you wanted sort of more average folks to be able to benefit from this and participate in the public offering. You put coupons on the packaging or something like that? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, to me being a small business is a great opportunity to innovate and it doesn't have to be just limited to your product. You can innovate in everything you do. And I always you know, promised myself that if we were ever successful and we were able to go public, I wanted my drinkers to benefit. Because frankly, the way an IPO works, it's called an initial public offering. But the public, if it's a hot stock and it's going to go up, the public is shut out of it. You know, the the brokers give it to their best clients. They give it to the big institutions yeah. who hold the, it for like the two seconds. And then they flip it, you know, if, as long as it opens at a higher price than, you know, the IPO price, the big institutions will hold it for a nanosecond. And I, I remember actually uh, uh, having a, a fight with one of the big uh, institutional investors. They're like, well, I'm going to buy lots of your shares, you know, I, I should get a discount. And, and when we went public, the, uh, the individual investors got the stock uh, at a lower price. They paid $15, hmm. and the big, big inve- institutional investors had to pay 20 How'd you pull that off? Well, I had to fight the investment bankers, but at the end of the day, they were willing to go along with it. In fact, we were very fortunate. One of them was uh, Hambrick and Quist, mm-hmm. and Bill Hambrick was uh, just this wonderful guy, an entrepreneur's friend, and he got it. And he said, this is great. I think more companies should do this. So he was supportive of it, and he very you know, prestigious, high-status guy in the investment banking community. He helped us make this happen. Uh, and we would we fought with some of these big institutions. Like, I get a better price. And I remember asking him, well, 
Are you a Says beer, who? Are you a beer drinker? And he said, no, I drink wine. And I said, good, you should pay more. <laughs> <laughs> how much of your run, how much of your success is luck, Tim? I think a lot of it is luck. You know, I uh, was at the right place at the right time with a real breakthrough. You know, I just happened to hit this historic moment when there was an opportunity mm -hmm. to change an entire element of our culture. You know, beer was treated like, you know, cheap college stuff when I first started. And I happened to have this unique combination of, you know, a really good business background um, and a family brewing history. So, you know, I've been drinking beer since I was four. Uh, so beer is <laughs> in my blood, about a .06, it's so really I'm legal, funny. but it's in my blood. <sighs> and, you know, in my 20s, I had, you know, great leadership training. I was an Outward Bound instructor. Mm. And that was a unique combination of talents of business and beer and leadership. And that sort of met this opportunity that was waiting for somebody to make really great American beer consistently and get it to people fresh. Do you think you're a good CEO, founder, leader? Um, I think I'm a good founder because uh, you, you know, guys are still it alive. sort of worked. Yeah. Um, what about leader? Because a lot of people talk about and point to your leadership and I'm, I'm wondering if you see what they see and what the lessons are in that? Um, well, there's lots of kinds of leadership. Uh, it's not homogeneous. Um, and I, I can say I'm not a good CEO. Uh, You're not a good CEO? No. Why? Um, because that means chief executive officer. And I'm not really a good manager. I've never claimed to be a good manager. Um, I, Rhonda was much better manager than I was, and for the last 17 years, we've, I've had a, a CEO who is a world-class manager. Uh, and so I've been able to focus on the things that matter to me, and those tend to be the things that I'm good at. Mm. So to me, when people ask me, well, what's your job then? And I tell them, well, I really focus on two things that I'm accountable for. And those two things are the quality of the beer and the culture of the company. Mm -hmm. And I believe if I take care of those and we've got good managers, mm -hmm. we'll be successful. And that's what I'm good at. So part of the culture is what many people point to you for, and that's not selling out. I mean, you, ne you haven't sold to the big guys. You haven't you know, taken what could be a very handsome sum of money and walked away. Why? Why didn't you sell? Well, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's for a, a whole bunch of reasons. First and foremost, I didn't start the company to do that. I started the company uh, because I wanted to create this revolution, and it needed to be a declaration of independence. You know, the craft brewing movement did not come from the marketing department of big companies. It came from the, the heart and the passion and the pride of a lot of people. 
And in a lot of ways, it's this unique and wonderful American story. Mm -hmm. Okay, go back to the early 80s. Everybody thinks American beer is swill. Um, and, you know, all the highly respected beers are coming from somewhere else. Well, guess what? Uh, a handful of misfits, you know, of people who were kind of outside of the mainstream. I, mean, I guess I was as close, but you know, I went to business school, I dropped out. Uh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had this wonderful experience. It, it actually took me seven years to get a two-year MBA. So I got to go to my fifth year reunion before I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> so it was this bunch of sort of marginal misfit type people with, you know, weird backgrounds. There was me, this business school dropout. There was a bike mechanic in Chico, California. There was a social worker in Fort Collins, an ex-journalist here in Brooklyn. Um, you know, people who didn't really fit. Mm -hmm. And they ended up creating a revolution yeah. that has changed way, the way the entire world thinks about beer. Very much like, you know, 10 years earlier in, you know, uh, uh, walnut groves in California, a few people that didn't bathe and looked like Ho Chi Minh, you know, went out and created uh, some of the great, you know, companies of the world mm -hmm. like, you know, mm. Steve Jobs. Yeah. So in April, you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, and you warned of the consolidation of, of some of the big brewing giants. Obviously, you've got the merger of SAB Miller, AB InBev. Well, I mean, those are your competitors. No surprise you don't love that they're coming together, getting bigger and more powerful. Um, is it just that? Is it against competition, or is it against the concept? Because you've also called in the Department of Justice to stop some of this. Yeah, I actually wrote the op-ed for the New York Times out of frustration um, with my experience with the DOJ because they have allowed, first they allowed two big global conglomerates mm -hmm. to control 90% of the beer production in the United States. Now that's not supposed to happen. That's about as concentrated as you get. And now they are allowing the people who control 90% of U.S. beer production to buy up the other 10%. And well, they're not buying you. No. You know that. No, they're not buying but me. Is this, but is it hurting your business? Um, it suddenly, I think, makes a more difficult environment because you've got these huge uh, brewing conglomerates that control a lot of the distribution and the retail. They control what's on draft in places, what's on shelves, and they can use that distribution clout mm -hmm. to push products on the shelves that the consumers may not want. And those push off the independent craft brewers like Sam Adams. That's right. And competition is good. You know, my, what I would like to see happen is have the big companies compete by creating, but isn't this how by innovating. But, Jim, isn't this how capitalism works? I mean, isn't this free market economics? Well, it's why we have antitrust laws. It's not free market economics when people control the market. The consumers suffer. You know, consumers have benefited from all of these craft beers who are innovative and creative, mm -hmm. create, you know, de economic development in their communities, create jobs and employment. That's a benefit to the consumer. Mm -hmm. If 
all of the beer in the United States is controlled by two big global brewing conglomerates, the consumer's gonna suffer, and that's the antitrust department's job is you, to prevent 90% from buying up the are, other 10. Are you, what do you, I mean, how would you assess your success in this fight thus far? Well, you know, we're, you know, we still have people who want independent craft beer. And I think um, there's actually the, the, the Brewers Association, which is the Craft Brewers Trade Association, has now, uh, in the last few weeks, put out a seal of independence mm. so that uh, craft brewers who are truly independent can distinguish themselves because consumers might not know who makes usually what. don't know. They're out there, they're buying 10 Barrel or Elysian or Golden Road or Goose Island or Red Hook or Kona or uh, Hop Valley and they all look like craft brewers. You're saying they Red Hook know. is not from a craft brewery in Red Hook, Brooklyn, right next not to Brooklyn. my apartment? Red, no, <laughs> Red Hook is actually from Seattle. Well, there you go. They, it's a much different neighborhood than the Red Hook. In Brooklyn. So um, what is this I hear about a rule that you have at work? You are fine with anyone saying F you at work, the F you yes. rule. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Okay. That Explain. actually is part of our culture. Okay. And we don't we don't generally say that around here. So fill yeah. me in. Um, the F U rule goes like this: that at Boston Beer Company, it's okay to say F U to anybody in the company if that's how you really feel and you have that right. Um, and of course, with any right goes the responsibility, and your responsibility is. Having said F you, you have to recognize that's just an emotive statement. It doesn't have a lot of intellectual content. So you have to explain to them why you said F you and what that person did to put you in that special F you frame of mind. And you have to be willing to listen to the other side of the story. And the reason we encourage that is it gets stuff out on the table. You know, problems don't fester. Have you ever said it? Oh, yeah. And I've had people say it to me. Really? Oh, absolutely. And it's and I'm very welcoming to that. You know, you, in order to maintain that of our culture, I need to reinforce that. Thank you. Um, I, obviously, you feel very strongly about this. Can you tell me, you know, what you meant by that? Can you tell me what made you feel that way? Can mm. you tell me, you know, what I can do to make it different? And I've gotten a lot of learning that way. Well, there you go. Your book is titled Quench Your Own Thirst, Business Lessons Learned Over a Beer or Two. So, Jim, what is the most valuable lesson you learned over a beer? You know, it was the first lesson, which is if you're going to start a business or change a career um, or take a new job, you should do what you think is going to make you happy rather than what's going to make you rich. Yeah. Because the chances that you're going to be rich are pretty small, but the chances that you can be happy are pretty great. And unless you're a sociopath, what would you rather be, happy or, or rich? rich? Or both. Both is you good. You kind of fell into that. Yeah, every <laughs> once in a while you luck out. But the real, you know, what, what really matters is do you enjoy what you do? Yeah. Do you go home every day? Because... At some point, the money just, you know, you have enough. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, once you're eating three meals a day, 
you're not better off if you can eat six. So what is the responsibility then? Because this is something that, that we, our team, cover a lot um, in our American Opportunity Series. And that is, you know, how do we, who are so fortunate, um, help close the opportunity gap and help narrow the income gap? For, for young people in this country coming up. I mean, you were a young person coming up and you had all these opportunities because you went, you had a good education and, you know, you eventually got that MBA after seven years and you had a great partner and you had a great family. What do you think the onus is or is there an onus on leaders like your, yourself to do more where the government isn't or can't to help these young people? Absolutely. And this is going to be crazy. Okay, but it's true, and you can go to the internet. Um, Forty years ago, in 1978, I wrote an article. Uh, it's actually in the Harvard Environmental Law Review, because okay. it was at one point going to be an environmental lawyer, and uh, I wrote an article uh, whose thesis was that businesses that recognize uh, and acknowledge and, and act on the idea that they have a social responsibility and a mission that goes beyond maximizing shareholder value. Vis businesses that recognize that actually perform better financially. And this is 40 years ago, and there was data to support that thesis, that businesses that recognize their social responsibility actually perform better for their shareholders. And act on it. And act on it. And that's a completely, uh, you know, unusual uh, thought that puts together things that people always think is, are incompatible. Back then, we see it more today, but back then, for sure. Yeah, back then, Milton Friedman for sure. was, you know, maximizing yes. shareholder value Absolutely. is the mission of a company. And I argued that that was wrong and that businesses actually were better if it was a win-win, mm. not just for the shareholders, but for all of the communities that they add value to. So what we've done is, 10 years ago, we, we thought about, I mean, I'll tell you, it's a long story, so you can edit it, but, um, <laughs> okay, so, you know, we would do a lot of community service stuff, team building, we'd mm -hmm. go out in our neighborhood, and one day, in the summer, we went out, and the management team went to a community center, and we spent the day painting it, and, you know, we laughed, and we'd done all this, and we'd painted the whole place, and everybody was feeling really good, and I didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And I was walking back to my car, and I was trying to figure out, why don't I feel good? And I realized... I just took $30,000 worth of management time and I created about $5,000 worth of bad painting. And why should I feel good about that? I just destroyed value. And I'm a business. What I'm good at is creating Job. value. So I'm going to think, I'm going to rethink how can we take it to the next level and as part of our social mission, create real value. And I took a year and I, you know, approached it like it would uh, starting a new business. I, you know, how do we innovate? And we created a program. We call it uh, Sam Adams Brewing the American Dream Program. And I realized what we are as a company, we're small, we're entrepreneurial. That's part of our culture. Why don't we help small businesses grow and succeed and create jobs and economic development in their community. And I thought, what did I need when I started Sam Adams that I couldn't get? And it was two things. 
loan money. Mm -hmm. Nobody would lend me money. Second was nuts and bolts business advice. You know, and I had this super education, but when I started Sam Adams, I didn't know how to do all the things I needed to do. I didn't know how to negotiate a real estate lease. I didn't know how to design a label. I didn't know how to make a sales call. I didn't know how to set up an accounting system. I didn't know, you know, how to do payroll. On and on and on. And, you know, and I made a lot of mistakes and some of them were costly. So I thought, okay, how do we provide loans and coaching and counseling and nuts and bolts stuff? And we, uh, we innovated around that. We developed a technique we call speed coaching, which is like speed dating. So we've provided coaching and counseling to over 7,000 businesses. Mm -hmm. And they'll come in and they'll see six or eight coaches mm -hmm. in an evening. One will tell them how to negotiate a real estate lease. The other will that. tell them how to design a lease. We'll bring in experts from Boston Beer. And now mm -hmm. it's been successful enough we're attracting other mm -hmm. people. We've even had uh, a reporter from the New York Times who covered oh, really? it. He said, this is so cool. And I said, guess what? You can be a coach because one of the things people need to know talk is to how press. do you get PR? And how do you talk to the media? And how do you talk to the press? Yeah. So he came back and was a coach. Look at so that. that's, and out of that, we've... Uh, helped. We made loans to 1,300 small businesses, $17 million in loans that have created 5,000 jobs in communities all over the and United States. And you probably States. made some good money off of it. No, it's no? philanthropic. No, no, no we you put don't, money they're into not it. really loans? Well, they are grants? loans, but when they get paid back, we put the money back into ah, the program. So it's it. actually, and it costs money to make the loans. I mean, that's why banks don't do it. To make a $10,000 small business loan, the costs of making it, administrating, et cetera, about $4,000. Right? I mean, Goldman Sachs has this 10,000 women loans program. Yeah. So you do have some banks doing it. Yeah. It's um, exciting that, we, that other people have, have followed that model. Before we wrap up, before we get to the rapid fire. Good. I've almost finished my beer. I'm you're ready. You're almost there. What business leader do you admire the most today? Well, the one that, um, I guess the one that I've always seen as really uh, inspiring would be Steve Jobs. You know, that, uh, to me... He was tough, though. Well... Right? Yes. I mean, the one... I mean, and everybody points that out. And yes, I, I take it that you can be a great leader without having to be an asshole. So... Uh, I've tried to do that, um, but I have always just loved, uh, you know, the fact that he came mm -hmm. from kind of outside of the the herd, yeah. if you will. There's yeah. a evolutionary phenomenon called, I think it's allopathic speciation, which is roughly that we evolve as a species because of the genetic material that comes from the outliers, mm. not the ones at the center. And Every entrepreneur loves the story of he started it, he built it, sure. he changed the world, and then the money people came in and they fired him. Yeah. And, and then, then he they came screwed back. up the company for back. 10 years and the only thing they could do to save it was, <laughs> was bring him back. back. And now, you know, that guy who nobody would hire, think of his resume. Yeah. Okay, here's his resume. College dropout started a business but had to close it to avoid federal prosecution, you know, doesn't bathe, 
hates wearing shoes, dresses like a homeless person. Would you hire that <laughs> resume? And that is the resume of the human being who created more Goodness. economic value than anyone in history. The, the most what entrepreneur company, doesn't love that? The most valuable company in the world today. Any interest in a political run? No, I make beer. <laughs> I make people happy. Beer is the most nonpartisan thing there is out there. I believe if you took, you know, the leaders of the Congress and put them, them together, beer. you know, and said, we got unlimited beer and don't come out until you've solved health care, tax reform and immigration, we would probably have something that we could all live with. All right. Let me know if you send them some beer. I think they could use some coming together. Yeah. Uh, all right, rapid fire. Bottle or can? Cans have gotten as good as bottles. Okay. And they no longer have that metallic taste, so it's whatever you prefer. That's but such a non-answer. Bottle or can? I'll give you an answer. Um, the Sam Adams can. Because okay. before we put Sam Adams in a can, we spent a year yes, I know and hundreds of thousands of dollars rethinking the beverage okay. can. So that's a, a pretty good drinking experience, but I don't mind a, a glass. You don't want to drink from the bottle. Okay. Light or lager? Lager. Bar or restaurant? Bar. Best place to drink a beer? Wherever they have Sam Adams. <laughs> East Coast or West Coast? I grew up in Ohio. Rust Belt. That's your answer. Uh, I grew up outside of Cincinnati. I believe it is the psychographic center of the country. Neither East nor, nor West, west. neither go. North nor South. All right. Minnesota, I can agree. Well, I'm sort of yeah, North. Yeah, you're North. I'm North. I'm the North. Yeah. Favorite decade? The next one. Best beer you've ever had? The Sam Adams I had after my daughter was born. Mm. That's a good one. Jim Cook, thank you very much. Cheers. It's been nice having a beer. I just, nice to have a beer. This Cheers. was great. I got to finish my beer. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.